Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Betches Media presents He's in the building! Afternoon Tea with host Sammy Sage. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. Presented by the Betches Sub Podcast. You better hope there's a lot of girls listening to this with the volume turned down. Your weekly dose of political therapy. Cardi, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And now, with this week's guest. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Your host, Sammy Sage. Welcome to today's episode of Afternoon Tea, your companion to the morning announcements and weekly political therapy session brought to you by The Betches Sup. Today's guest is Malcolm Gladwell. Ever heard of him? He's here to tell us about his new three-part series and reinterpretation of The Little Mermaid, and we also discuss parallels with Free Britney. With that, let's get the tea from Malcolm. Thank you so much for joining us, Malcolm. This is very exciting for us. No, thank you for having me. You were one of the first like authors I read when I was, you know, young and I felt like I was first discovering the world of nonfiction and I have a distinct memory of trying to get tickets to see you at the New Yorker Festival but not being able to. No. Oh, yeah. Now I feel bad. You were denied. <laughs> you know, it's but this this is actually um way better. So if I had known that then, I um I wonder if I would have been as upset, but um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I was really, really interested to listen to the beginning of your new season of revisionist history. Um, so I guess before that, we can just sort of talk about you as a writer. Mm-hmm. Your writing is so varied and it has touched on so many elements of trying to explain the realities of the world that we live in. So how do you decide what topics to explore at any given time? Oh, uh, you know, there's no process. There's only serendipity and good fortune and waking up in the middle of the night um, desperate for some some new idea. I didn't, I you know, I do 10 episodes of Revisionist History uh, season and I had nine ideas up until two weeks ago, and I desperately needed a tenth. And I literally did wake up at three in the morning and realize, oh, that would work, and then didn't get back to sleep, of course. Um, and it, it, I just I just finished that episode, I think. I did the first draft. I, I think it did work, but it, I don't even know why it came to me. I just, I wanted to do this thing on, I woke up in the morning and I just thought, you know, I should do something about dogs. Ah. Uh- Really? What are you? What are you going to do about dogs? I'm, I'm doing something about, uh, you know, disease detection dogs, the dogs, which I didn't even know that much about. But I thought, I forgot what there was some connection made, you know, at three in the morning that made me think this would be really fun to do, and I then Googled some just literally the words dogs sniff disease, and we ended up in Alabama. Um, like four days later. <laughs> wow! Um, and we had the best time. And we and it's now we have this. It's all about what would happen. The episode's all about um, could we have dealt with 
the pandemic much more efficiently if we had used dogs to detect the, the virus and not all these insanely expensive, cumbersome, ridiculous tests. Um, and uh, But it just meant we got to hang out with dogs and tell great dog stories. And it was so much fun. But so how did I decide to, I mean, I don't know if I decided, I just woke up in the morning desperate for an idea and that was what came to mind. That's amazing. So, I mean, I'm a big dog lover. I have two dogs. Do you have any dogs? I have a cat. I grew up with dogs. Although I don't believe in the dog-cat. I don't believe you belong to one. I'm not interested in that war. I belong to both parties. I had cats growing up and now I have dogs. So I'm with you. you. Would you go back? Would you add a cat to the equation? I don't know if our dogs would take it so well. They really like attention. But I'm not anti-cat, you know. No, they're different. It's like they're so, they occupy very different spaces in our hearts. And my, but the cat, Biggie Smalls, the cat that, uh, um, he is, uh, he thinks he's a dog. So it's very confusing. It's almost like I have a dog, only he's a little British short hair. He just struts around like he is a, he is a dog. Anyway, but anyway, so dogs, I love dogs. And this is great fun to do. One of my one of my cats growing up had that dog like personality as well, so I understand that. But did you find that dog detection would have been an effective means during the pandemic? Oh yeah, I mean the problem is we don't have enough dogs. It, oh wow, we would need to have hundreds of thousands of dogs to have made it work, or even tens of thousands. But dogs are so much better at detecting COVID than any man-made system of doing it. Dogs are amazing, um, and the whole. Peace turned into this whole thing about how we've had for thousands of years this best friend who is amazing at the one thing we're actually bad at. We have bad noses as human beings. We're not good smellers. Dogs are the greatest smellers ever. And we just don't use them enough. So it's all about like, what, why are we, you know, we'll condescend to pets and have them, you know, just around to kind of stroke and, you know, shake a paw and whatever, roll over. But we don't want to use them at the thing they're actually really good at. And that they want to do, by the way. Unless you want them to sniff for drugs. So they allow them to do that. <laughs> don't they forget. Do allow them. They yeah. do allow them to do that. Yeah, my, do- my dogs have wonderful noses. They will. One of them, in fact, sniffed out an entire dish of stuffed shells last night and right. devoured it. So I trust they yeah. I trust they could have found COVID. I'm definitely very interest- interested to listen to that. But... um. I do want to talk about your your latest, I guess, triad of episodes that focuses on yeah. The Little Mermaid. It seems like you have a really interesting set of theories going. So would you want to, I guess, yes. introduce that to at the Betches Sup audience? Well, so believe it or not, I had never seen The Little Mermaid until this spring. So I'm way, way, way behind. And in fact, I don't even think I had ever seen a Disney animated movie in my entire life. Wow. Which seems incredible. But I grew up without a television. So all of the stuff, by the time I, I didn't really have a television until I was in college. And I would go down to the TV room and watch TV with everybody else. So like, I missed all this stuff. So I happened to, I was reading, I ran across this article written by this unbelievably brilliant um a woman named uh, Laura Beth Nielsen, who also happens to be 
importantly for the purposes of podcast, hilarious, deeply hilarious. I know you've listened to the episode. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, so great. she had wrote this amazing paper about all the problems with The Little Mermaid. And I was like, that's so weird. So then I watched it. And I was like, oh, she's so right. This is this is like a massively problematic. Um, so then I started calling around to people who I thought would be, might have an opinion on this. And so the You've listened to the first episode. What happens in by the third episode, we do three episodes on A Little Mermaid. I commissioned my friend Britt Marling, who did the, she's the screenwriter who did the OA. You know, she's like. I love the, the OA. Yes. So I thought the OA was amazing. I've known Britt for years, and I called her up, and I said, Britt, will you, have you, do you know, did you ever watch The Little Mermaid as a kid? And she goes, are you kidding me? I used to tie my feet together with a tube sock and dive into our pool and pretend to be a mermaid. That's how obsessed I was with The Little Mermaid. So she agreed to rewrite The Little Mermaid. So the first two episodes are all the things that's wrong with it. And the third episode is Britt rewrites it and then uh, and fixes it. And then we had this really fun thing. We were like, well, let's, let's do Britt's version as a radio play and – do you want me to tell you who we cast in all the various roles? Yeah, of course. I want to hear what happens in the in in her re, rewriting of it. Well, we <clears throat> I'll leave the casting to later because it's very exciting. It's very exciting who we got. Um, well, Brit. So you know, we walk through all the issues, and the biggest issue that Brit has is, um, which is the, and it is the major issue with the movie, which is you start out and you have this mermaid who is adventurous and full of life and wants to explore the world and doesn't want to be trapped into all of the kind of stereotypical roles that young mermaids get trapped into. <laughs> and she has this desire to become a princess. She falls in love with the prince and she wants to become a human and have feet. And of course she makes the deal with the evil sea witch Ursula. And uh, she and it, she runs into trouble, right? And then what happens? She has to be rescued by Prince Eric. Now, there's your problem number one. Right. So, And with every Disney movie, kind of. And with every Disney, by the way. A young woman full of life and adventure and intelligence and verve. And the only way out of her dilemma is for a man to come along and bail her out. Problem number one. Two, how does the man bail her out? By committing a murder in cold blood. That's also a problem. He just flat out murders Ursula. By the way, I don't know why everyone's so angry at Ursula. Like, we get into, in our revision, we, Brit rescues Ursula. I'll get to that. Oh, wow. Um, and then there's the additional problem that uh, she, you know, the, the beautiful thing about the original Disney movie is this metaphor of, of Ariel having to give up her voice in order to to um, find a place in the world, right? To be accepted as, which is this incredible metaphor about about uh, about uh, female adolescence. Absolutely. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic. The next time you are searching for the perfect gift, now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone on any occasion. Now it's easier to find gifts made by independent sellers for all of the people in your life, like the pickleballers, I know plenty of those, the jazz fan, the artist, the pasta lover, whatever niche interest they have, you can find an incredible gift on Etsy. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there is something for everyone. There is so much pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas specifically for my dad, but my dad loves flying. He loves airplanes. He loves aviation, and he never gets sick of a cute little gift that has a reference to that. And the inventory for that on Etsy is incredible. I hope my dad lives for 200 years because I can get him a birthday present related to aviation or planes from Etsy for every single one of them, if not hundreds and hundreds of years more. There really is that much. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. When I heard that you were doing a series on it, I was like, oh, well, of course, it's about how a young woman has to give up her voice to be with a man, and then Meghan Markle as you mentioned in the episode, demonstrates that exact point. But what I found interesting about the first episode was that you didn't really make that sort of obvious, you didn't make it about that obvious problem. You made it more about uh, sort of the contractual agreements we make in society. Yes. And um, we're just getting warmed up. Yeah. We're just getting warmed up for that first episode. (laughs) Right, right. But but what I was going to say was having created this incredibly interesting problem um, or or engage with this incredibly interesting idea that young girls have to give up their voice, right? What does the Disney movie say at the end? It says, well, the only way for them to get their voice back is to have a man get it back for them. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Which is nuts. It's completely nuts. Well, what, what, what kind of message yeah. is that? I mean, what what's sort of crazy to me is that this was like one of the first movies I ever saw. Aladdin yeah. was first. And yeah. then I think yeah. The Little Mermaid. Yeah. And like, I never even thought about how that was a problem until I was maybe like 20, 20 something. Yeah. And yeah. like, why didn't my mom say anything? <laughs> like, it's like, it's sort of, <laughs> I feel like if I watched something like that now, I'd be like, this is pretty obviously messed up. And... I'm going to make that clear. Like, why didn't any of the moms say anything? (laughs) It's so weird. I don't know. I mean, is it that that generation, you know, your mom belonged to it and your grandmother and your great-grandmother all belonged to a generation where were they so kind of just um, beaten down by how much sort of sexism they had to deal with that they just couldn't be, they didn't have the energy to bring the fight to... Disney movies? Well, now that I am thinking about why my my own mother didn't say anything, it's maybe yeah. like just without getting into too many specifics of her marriage and that yeah. Yeah. kind of the metaphor actually works quite well for her. And I can see why she didn't say something. But my grandmother was not like that whatsoever. And she was the one taking me to these movies, buying me these books. Mm-hmm. And she was not. I would say like a, a woman who was beaten down by sexism whatsoever. She was very independent. Um, So I wonder about that. But it's but even, you know, without just taking it from my individual situation, like this was societally accepted, like everyone I knew Mm. had Disney 
princesses dressed up as them had dolls all the merch you go to disney worlds and yeah it's pretty interesting that um the millennial generation in particular was raised with this so ingrained yeah with this kind of force-fed this fantasy and by the way you can start we do this in the second episode we sort of go further with it you know the reason that fantasy is so destructive is not just that it um it sends this kind of incre- incredibly retrograde message to young girls about where where they can find their freedom and who's in control of their destiny and all those kinds of things um it's also that these the, the world that disney creates in these movies is a world that has of princess princes and princesses and then a whole cast of characters who serve them right <laughs> Right. right. I mean, it's just like, and the, this, and the servers this, are like sort of these like caricatures of, uh-huh. of other, I, I guess they sort of are meant to embody stereotypes of, of certain personalities. Let's, and let's remember that in The Little Mermaid, one of those servants is a guy with a, I mean, I say this as someone who is half Jamaican, with like a Jamaican accent. Like, can we get, can we, can we go right. even further with this? Can we, like, this is a movie that has as the subservient character. A black guy from the West Indies, right? Right. He's like, who's it? It's um, it's uh, it's Scuttle. Is it Scuttle? No. Who's the? No, it's not Scuttle. Sebastian. It's Sebastian. Sebastian, of course. It's Sebastian who has a bad, a bad Jamaican accent, by the way, not a good one. But um, but like, I don't. It's just like there's all of this. It's sort of a, it's like a 19th century thing. It's like the kind of thing you would tell your kid if you were if it was 1860 and you were in some country house in England, and that's what you were. It's just so odd to me that this is what's going on in urban homes in 21st century America. Right. I also think if you can, like when you look at the the way that the female characters are drawn, they are drawn to embody sort of what like that Victorian era Mm -hmm. clothing was supposed to look like. If you look at like Belle, they like they all have these teeny tiny waists and giant poofy skirts like clearly created by a corset and like these huge eyes and yeah it's 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 it is the way they're drawn is almost retro of Mm -hmm. sort of like what the male gaze idealizes the woman body to be but also in the drawing i'll never forget when i was like i don't know probably 16 or 17 and people you start discovering that the uh way like the castle in the little mermaid is actually drawn to look like like a penis and that all these like sexual imagery is actually uh-huh. within disney's illustration and you just and you think about you know that was probably created by just like a bunch of like 20 30 40 year old men who were like let me like get these like let me try to sexualize this children's movie yeah and yeah, I mean, you if you go on like TikTok, you'll there's definitely like a whole world of people who are like, uh, I my the first Disney character, the first person I ever had a crush on was like a Disney character, and like yeah. that's not by accident. Yeah, no, it's no, it's not by accident. It's it, there's something really, you know, <clears throat> the other insidious thing is, and this is what we get into in the second of the three episodes. Um, we get into this whole notion is there's two ways. There are two historic forms in which fairy tales um, can be told. Um, one is called a, a a poetic justice fairy tale, where 
good pe- good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Disney, um, uh, and the other way is what's called poetic, is called um, a fairy tale twist. Well, you don't know what's going to happen. There's some kind of chance, random thing that a surprise happens. Um, people's fates are not predetermined by their character or their actions. And Disney movies are always the first kind. It is always the case that bad people get punished and good people are rewarded. Not just that, not just good people, that attractive, yes, powerful good White, people get rewarded. Usually. Right, usually. And that anyone who doesn't fit that stereotype. So Ursula in The Little Mermaid gets murdered. Whereas, you know, Prince Eric is rewarded with the beautiful bride. That goes on and on and on and on. And that's like really, we had this long discussion with this totally fascinating guy who was talking about how destructive that idea is to young kids because the kids watches that movie, understands, sees this lesson, and then they think, what do they think? They're smart. And they think, oh, I'm not perfect. Does that mean bad things are going to happen to me? Right? I'm not this beautiful, rich, like... Am I destined to be punished because of my imperfection? And that's like nuts. Why Why is that a lesson we're peddling to kids at the most vulnerable moment of their development? You know, now I think I know why I was so anxious as a child. Like, <laughs> you watched too much Disney? <laughs> I watched a lot. I would repeat on the VCR, rewind, watch again. I had the books. I had the outfits. Like, Oh, you were full on. Yeah. I mean... I grew up as a child in the 90s. Like like I yeah. was I was born in 1989. I am like that core 90s audience who yeah. hit adolescence right at 9/11, graduated, you know, was in college during the recession. Like I am that core millennial who yeah. Yeah. like you could probably track my views against the views of most people my age. It wasn't just um, it wasn't just Little Mermaid in Beauty and the Beast. The Beast mm-hmm. is like kind of an asshole, and he looks ugly because he's in, like and deformed. It's like, well, what about just people who have unattractive features? Like, are you saying like the punishment? Yeah, it's yeah. completely, and you could really see that in kind of all their movies. The villains are always mm-hmm. ugly, scary, a different color, like <laughs> yeah. So one of the things we wanted to do, so when I called Britain and said, I want you to rewrite it, the movie, um, and to rewrite the ending, really. It's really the last, the movie's great. The first half of that movie is just fantastic. First two-thirds is fantastic. It starts to fall apart when, when you know, Ariel has to be rescued by all of her, um, by, by Prince Eric and others. So Brit takes the, starting with, when they remember when they crashed the wedding party on the boat, so she yes. starts there, and one of the things she does is she tries to um, one give Ariel some sense of agency back, but also she has to rescue Ursula because um, Britt wanted to break out of this idea that Ursula has to be punished because she's ugly and old and um, troubled. I mean, Ursula's troubled, right? right. She right. was exiled from the kingdom. Like, so, right. so in the Disney movie, we take the, the troubled, unhappy exile and we murder them. We, yeah. We, we ram them with the prow of our ship, right? right? 
Very violent, also. Very, very, All very these violent. movies, very violent. Crazy, crazy. Talk violent. it out, guys. <laughs> but uh, so in our version, that doesn't. I'm not going to give it away, but Ursula doesn't. Ursula gets redeemed. Ursula, Ursula gets instead of murdering Ursula, Ariel confronts her. Not confronts is the wrong word. Ariel has a conversation with her. And they find a way to kind of reconcile their differences. It's so. How does she do know, that without the voice? <clears throat> she. Uh, how does she do that without? Oh, she gets. Wait, now I'm forgetting our mechanism for her getting <laughs> her voice back. Um, we have it. it we, you don't have to give it away. I'm not gonna give it away. Make people I'm not, listen. I'm not give it away. Yeah. No. She in the as it works out. She has this conversation, this incredibly moving conversation with Ursula at the climax of our version. Um, and, you know, our... I, can, I, can I boast about our casting? Absolutely. I was about to ask, so, yes. Our, our Ursula is Glenn, Co- Glenn Close. Oh, wow. Famous, Ariel, famously Cruella. Exactly. And our Ariel is Jodie Foster. Oh, wow. I am, I'm excited to hear that. And our Prince Eric is Dax Shepard. Real, of course, so, podcasting, podcasting yes. superstar. Superstar, superstar. And he plays Prince Eric as a doofus, as like a, just a dumb kind of airhead. Like a high school yeah. Yeah. kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but when you hear, the reason I bring up, so we gave these two incredibly gifted actresses uh, a chance to rethink these two Seminal roles, Ariel and Ursula, right? The two of the most, in the imaginations of young children in America, two of the most important characters, right? Vivid. And we said to these two insanely talented actresses, uh, rethink, here's a new script in which doesn't have the same cartoonish, ridiculous ending. Breathe new life into these characters. And it, when, I, when, when we were doing the Glenn Close parts in particular, although both, but Glenn Close does a revision of Ursula, and suddenly Ursula's not a one-dimensional villain. She's a woman who has been struggling under a burden as this kind of exile and wants to be rescued and brought back into the fold. And she gave Ursula back her humanity, as only an incredible actor can do, right? Yeah. And I always loved Glenn Close, but when I'd never seen her when she was reading that part for our little, it was, it was just like, it was so fantastic. It was like, unbel- my jaw was on the floor. I was like, I cannot believe how, first of all, how suddenly I had this, she makes me have sympathy for Ursula. I felt for Ursula as I watched Glenn Close kind of revisit that character and bring her to life. But also I was like, Glenn Close, damn, she, this is like, this woman can't act. I mean, she just, she just like she could. I if I was a if I was asked to to be an actor in the same movie or play as Glenn Close, I would say no, because I feel like she would just blow me out of the water. Or she would level you up. You never <laughs> or know. She would le- I don't know. I mean, I'm not an actor. I have no idea what that's like. But the but you can. I mean, if you're sharing any kind of stage with her, she's gonna she's gonna you know, outshine you by so many watts. Um, 
But uh, anyway, it was like so much fun to do this, this kind of recreation of an I- iconic movie. That's amazing. Would you would you ever consider doing this with other movies? Mm. I mean, I, I wonder if like this could, I mean, Disney, I'm not going to speak for Disney, but I do feel that it could be such an opportunity for a company like Disney to move their storytelling forward for the, in a way that aligns with the, the newer generations, like the new zeitgeist in a way that makes more sense for kids. Yeah, I, I actually couldn't agree with you more. So there's a couple things you said that make, do we want to do more of these? Absolutely. There's, it was so much fun to do. Everyone, um, you know, J- Jodie Foster came up to our studio in Hudson to, to record her parts and she, it was so much fun. She just, she's, I mean, she stuck around all afternoon. Like, she just, I mean, it was like, it was like, so it was like, I've, you know, there was this, this opportunity to do something different and new, and I totally want to do that again. Well, um, if you need someone to rewrite the ending of Sleeping Beauty, I can, I, I will happily contribute. <laughs> but the Disney thing's super interesting. So, I really want, and I don't know the answer to this. I tried to interview the guy who wrote The Little Mermaid, who's a big Disney director, um, who also, I've forgotten, he did uh, uh, a bunch of the other big ones. I've forgotten them right now. And I didn't, they never, you know, I tried and tried and tried and tried, didn't get anywhere. I really don't know whether Disney is aware of all of the problems with these movies or whether they just think, you know, F it. They've, this is making us billions of dollars. I'm, we're not going to mess with it. And maybe what America needs is, you know, these kinds of incredibly, um, uh, what's the right word for these stories? Retro. Uh, yes. Retro <laughs> is not a bad word. These it's not. It's retro not. Stories. It, it's a kind word for. It's a, it's a kind word. But I don't know if we sat down here with you know, Bob Iger, the head of the CEO of chairman of the Disney company. Would he, I don't know, honestly, I don't know. Would he, would he say, eh, you know, maybe you're right, or would he get really defensive? I don't know the answer to that question. What do you think? I think it depends who his PR team is and what they tell him he should say. Because I don't, because he's not, whether, whether Bob Iger agrees with this sort of philosophy or not, is almost mm. irrelevant since he is leading a public company and whatever he says has to align with whatever strategy they're taking. And I'm sure their strategy is based yeah. on millions of dollars in market research and like who but knows what it would involve for them to re to like unearth this. At the same time, all of those big Disney executives, not all of them, but many of them have children. Right. Um, many of them have daughters. Uh, and I am sure that they all sat down because it's their own company, sat down with their daughters and watched these movies at some point. It must have occurred to them, like, even if it was unstated that, wait a second, what exactly am I teaching my daughter here? Right. I mean, do I really? I mean, so they must, in their heart of hearts, have at least some reservations about what they're peddling, right? I can't imagine that they don't. Well, the, issue, the issue is... Maybe- would, Maybe they maybe they like it because in that structure, because ultimately the structure of what they're teaching patriarchal ideals and maybe they're like, you know, maybe it's not great for my daughter, but I got to stay up here. And who I don't Mm. maybe they don't necessarily want this sort of ideological undermining. And they realize that Disney plays that role and has the power to actually 
tonally change the way people look at things. Mm -hmm. But I wonder mm -hmm. what effect do you think that this has on like young boys who are watching these these films? So here's here's where I have to because I all of these Disney films were absent from my childhood. Um, I don't know. Do you have brothers? I had a brother who passed away, but he oh, he had autism. I will so I will say he loved Disney movies, but he had he uh -huh. had he had autism, so there was it wasn't the same sort of connection oh, with it. But he really yeah. enjoyed watching Disney movies. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's hard hard I for just, me to say. Yeah, I don't know to what extent. I don't know how. I guess I the better way to say this. I don't know how a young boy watches these movies. So does the, does the way a seven-year-old boy watched The Little Mermaid differ from the way a seven-year-old girl does? Do they, because they're on the winning side, you know, they're right. not identifying with Ariel, they're identifying with Prince Eric, who's like jumping on the boat and saving the beautiful woman. So maybe their way of processing it is very different. But I don't know if it's any less problematic because, you know, we, we've been talking about the way the female characters in this movie are portrayed. The way Prince Eric is portrayed, and King Triton, but particularly Prince Eric, is w in some ways worse. Right. Because his only function in this movie, first of all, he's an idiot. He doesn't... <laughs> he doesn't he, recognize he doesn't even, the bait and switch. <laughs> doesn't recognize the bait and switch. And two, the only thing the movie allows him to do is to murder Ur Ursula. He doesn't... He's not allowed to solve the problem in any creative way. He's just required to jump on his boat and ram her with the prow of his ship. That's his function in the movie is to is to like I said to murder her. Like that's that's fucked. I'm sorry. Can I say that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. More and more fucked than up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's just as bad. So I don't know if I'm a seven year old boy and I sit and watch that. Am I am I cheering for that or am I or am I like saying, well, wait a minute, why is this guy acting like such a doofus? Well, I, I think probably, and now that I'm thinking like just br more broadly about what Disney movies and how they portray their male protagonists, they're mm -hmm. usually the the males are the men are not the main character is yeah. is one thing that I think is interesting. The female tends to be the main character, but the male still tends to be the stronger character. And then what they typically demonstrate is strength through violence. Uh, yeah. When you think about it. I think every Disney movie involves physic physicality. It's none of it is like outsmarting with, you know. I think Home Alone sort of does a better job of of teaching like a a, a young male how to how to get by than some of these Disney movies because they do. In, there's a lot of sword fighting and slaying of dragons and that sort of thing. And I wonder if that. I mean, if I'm a, a young boy, I, I guess the message I'm probably taking is my physicality is the most important and the ability to physically dominate someone is how I'm going to impress women. Yeah. And then that carries through through video games. And I, I'm not someone who wants to demonize video games, but it does. Um, action movies. And yeah, it's sort of like just one link in the chain. In the chain. Yeah. yeah, it's what what I would be really curious. I, I don't don't know the answer to this, but when you it's, it's what you just said makes me wonder: is a lot of the appeal of those later adult versions, those of so the adult comic, the the adult uh, animated movie is, 
you know, Die Hard or whatever the, right. you know, same. But uh, did we set, did we kind of um, prime the pump with these Disney things? In other words, is the reason we are as, uh, why young men are as obsessed with these kind of violent fantasies because we planted the seed when they were six with these kind of antiquated fairy tales? And if so, that's even more fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I... I feel like the, the older I get, not that I'm so old, I and I observe people around me and I I read more about sort of psychology of how people's attachments are formed and how their their beliefs are formed. I do think that a lot of it forms earlier than we realize. And if you look at sort of like how, as an adult, how someone can navigate like their family, what they think is normal is what they grew up Mm-hmm. within their family. So, I mean, I can't imagine that the images that we watched in our spare time for hours a week could have done anything less than subliminally. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I can remember certain lines from from certain Disney movies like so well because they were implanted so young and I watched them so repeatedly. And I think about sort of the beliefs or the inherent sort of automatic assumptions I made about the world until I was maybe like 25. And they definitely, it took, I would say, the Me Too movement, the things that happened from 2016 and past, for me to sort of like mentally flip from Mm -hmm. some of these like Mm -hmm. patriarchal assumptions that Mm -hmm. I realized were so ingrained in me. And so I can't imagine that there's anything more that would affect you than what you see when you're very young. Yeah. Well, this was, you know, in the episode that you listened to, the first episode, this was Laura Beth Nielsen's point. So she, as you know, she she's fixated on the fact that Ursula makes Ariel sign this contract, the contract that she will give up her voice in return for um, getting legs and being a human being. And the contract, Ursula says, once it's once Ariel signs it, the contract can't be broken, right? Um, that's why they have to murder Ursula. Um, and Laura Beth Nielsen, who is both a sociologist and a law professor, she makes this very simple point, which is there's no such thing as a contract that can't be broken. <laughs> the whole point of the law is the law doesn't think that once you've signed your name to something, it's over. The law gives you multiple opportunities for revisiting those kinds of things, particularly if the contract that you signed is unconscionable, is some kind of like... And so the contract that Ariel signs with Ursula is exactly the kind of contract that would not hold up in a court of law. It involves a minor. It involves a sale of body parts. It's like... So... And she's kind of tongue-in-cheek on this, but she's kind of not because she's saying, look, six-year-olds and seven-year-olds are forming their notions of what the law is at that age. And Disney is teaching them that the law is this kind of stupid, blind, crazy mechanism by which people are exploited. She's like, that's not what the law is, right? The law, here's what, here's a woman, a brilliant woman who's devoted her life to being a law professor, among other things. And her whole thing is, why is she a lawyer? Because of the opposite, because she sees the law as a way of bringing justice to the world, right? So she's like, she's watching this movie with her kids, and she's like, wait a second, 
This the notion of law that's enshrined in this Disney movie is the exact opposite of the way law ought to function in real life. Why are you telling? Why do Walt Disney Company are you telling my kids a lie about what the law is? Well, I think Disney probably benefits from people thinking that you can't break contracts with them. Exactly. <laughs> 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 yes, they do. Yeah. They might have a little bit of a conflict of interest on this one. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the other subliminal message. Like you have phallic symbols and and legal yes. advice. Don't don't mess with our uh, with our team of our our, uh, our army of attorneys. Hey there, overwhelmed foodies. Are you drowning in a sea of meal kit options, feeling like you're in a bad dating game where every contestant looks the same with the same fish picture? Fear not, because amidst the chaos, there's one shining star worth your culinary affection. Home Chef is not just another fish in the meal kit sea. They're the gourmet catch that you've been dreaming of. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef design recipes, conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you and the entire family covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week, and they serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it is economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. So for a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash feverdream. That's homechef.com slash feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com slash feverdream. You must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. That was such an interesting point. It was, I will admit, completely novel and out of left field when I heard her saying that because it never even like occurred to me that a contract was like a main feature of that movie. But obviously she had, you know, her whole theory and especially that would make Prince Eric's killing an extrajudicial killing, which is obviously something we have a problem with as well. (laughs) Listening to it when I did, while we're sort of in the midst of Free Britney and um, Bill Cosby getting out of prison yesterday. I thought that it was such an interesting sort of like intersection of that. And do you Mm -hmm. think that there's sort of like any echoes of of that within what we're watching play out now? Oh, particularly with Free Britney. Free Britney, I just say on this, on the subject of Free Britney, this is a classic example of a story that isn't nearly big enough. You know, this should be, this isn't just an entertainment story or a weird story involving, this is actually a really, really fundamental example of how um, the law is is not being exercised justly. It's an outrageous, what she's gone through is absolutely outrageous. And it's not specific to her. It is, there is our, there are a specific set of laws around guardianship that are, badly written and being abused routinely. And this should be, if we do it right, you know, Brittany should be the kind of way and the, the, the means by which we revisit and rewrite these set of, of ridiculous rules. But like the idea that like an intelligent, successful adult is somehow treated like she's a slave. I you mean, know, she had a song nuts. to that. She had a song with that title, so... Yeah, you know, 
no i mean it's actually kind of prescient how many of her song lyrics do echo what she's going through now but Mm. so what do you i guess what do you think should change other than they should just let her letting her out like what do you think should be changed in a a bigger sense well i don't you know i'm not a lawyer and don't know the specifics of the guardianship thing but the crucial point to, to your original question is that the reason that this issue has gone on for as long as it has with Brittany and other people is that we do we are oddly sometimes complacent's not the right word we we forget that the law is supposed to embody justice and we kind of think we kind of give up on trying to fix these kind of fundamental moral errors that get baked into certain kinds of laws and that little i mean as trivial as it seems that moment in the little mermaid where everyone just ursula says it's an unbreakable contract and everyone else just says okay i guess we can't break it then is that's the same impulse it's like oh she's being controlled by her, her dad oh and oh i guess guess we got to, you know, deal with that somehow. Like, it's the same thing. It's this kind of fatalism. And by the way, I mean, I'm now I'm, I'm reaching into a much more grandiose thing. What was the civil rights movement about in the 1960s? It was, it was a series of people, Martin Luther King and others, confronting this very same notion. The law in America ought to be something that does not reinforce historical patterns of discrimination, but rather can be used to liberate a disadvantaged minority. It was all about the law, right? It was about when they were in Birmingham marching every day, they weren't doing that to show off or whatever. They were doing that to change the laws around segregation in the South, to to get the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. We'll go on and on and on. Like, that... All of these movements, the ones that really are powerful and have at their core this notion of this positive notion about what the law can do. Right. And Disney's telling us something else. Do you ever feel like the people who are most or least afraid to bend a contract, break the law, are the ones mm. who tend to do it for ill-gotten gains or wrong, you know, selfish reasons. Because I feel like the only people who care about the law are like the people who want good, like justice. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think especially now there's this like manipulation of legality for convenience that you mm-hmm. just see it all the time. And it feels so hard to fight back against. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an interesting I mean, I think it maybe it depends on the realm. You know, when I think of, when I read stories about how like billionaires are not paying taxes. Right. And they are adhering to the letter of the law, but not its spirit. Right. And I think that little part bothers me. Like, you have an obligation if you're wealthy, I think, to attend to the spirit of the laws in the country that you're a part. Yes, your accountant can come up with some incredibly clever things so you pay zero taxes, but it doesn't mean you should do it. Right. right? You, so I do think there has to be, the law's not this kind of, it's not this, um, uh, uh, it's more, it's a living document that has a spirit to it, and you have to attend to the spirit of it. Um, and that's what I f- find missing, is people take this very, very narrow scope of what 
on the laws about and don't don't sit that back and reflect about well why do we have this law in the first place what's it intending to accomplish in the case of taxes the law the tax laws are there to ensure that all of us pay a fair share and these guys are not paying a fair share right so i guess in that instance yeah there's some there's some game playing going on with um with legality yeah i think i mean i think you i think you see it a lot like even you know, we had the Me Too movement, but in terms of consequences, legal consequences or financial ones, it doesn't really feel like there were so many. It feels like it was an ideological victory, but mm-hmm. a lot of it also just feels like women who have suffered from things or not not necessarily only women, people who have suffered from the dynamics as they exist in society today, sort of screaming into this Twitter void where they have a lot of power to knock someone off their like social media apparatus pedestal, but that's only their like social media. That's not, or, you know, it doesn't necessarily do anything long term because the law doesn't have the teeth Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or the lawyers are just too good and expensive on. Yeah. It's, it is quite, it is quite disappointing, but, um, seems like the little mermaid led the way the little mermaid was in the vanguard of this yes, <laughs> yes. it was <laughs> so malcolm thank you so much for this conversation i am so excited to hear these next two episodes and to hear these wonderful talented actors who who are going to be replaying this new story and I just have to say thank you. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? I understand you have a new book out as well. Called The Bomber Mafia. Yes, it's uh, the audiobook is something that we're very proud of because we're taking the kind of narrative and uh, audio qualities of podcasts and turning them into audiobooks. And um, so, yeah, that was something that just came out a couple months back. But um uh, no, this has been really, really fun. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I hope you enjoy uh, parts two and three as much as you enjoy part one. Thank you. And I, I do just want to say, I, I, as you're describing, I mean, first the way you handled the Bomber Mafia as an audiobook and now this three-part series of Little Mermaid, I could see this really becoming a, a trend within podcasting. So I hope so. Yeah, you're definitely inspiring me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, which way? What's the one? What's the one you wanted to rewrite? Beauty and the Beast. Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. All right, right. We'll, we'll, we'll be back. We'll be back to get your thoughts. Okay. Thank you. Like, I mean, I'm I'm not a screenwriter, but I can think of some ideas. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Afternoon Tea is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales Pico. Our editor is Stacey Wong. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.